the average users and the average uh, borrower dollar really wants uh, to have fixed rates. Uh, I don't see any reason why that would be different in DeFi. If we want DeFi to go mainstream, I think you know we have to go meet users where their preferences are, and they have clearly expressed their preferences here in traditional capital markets. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bell Curve. Yeah, you know, who are we talking to today? Tushar, baby. Tushar. <laughs> Tushar Jameson. <laughs> what is up with that accent never do that again but we are talking to you charging this is the best intro Dushar's ever got right there all right you you go you take this uh he's gonna listen and be like i'm never doing an interview with these guys again um yeah all right there actually is a method so Tushar jane uh obviously he's a he's a managing partner in multi-coin uh he's we we called him on for two reasons so in episode one we talked to michael and vance about you know the death of c5 which is a little bit of a you know marketing gimmicky kind of name but basically all of this, the recent implosion of CFI leverage taking way down, it's going to push activity on the margin out into DeFi. So that creates an opportunity. Tushar actually outlined what one of those opportunities were. So uh, in October of last year, he read a really great piece called Exploring the Opportunity for DeFi Interest Rate Markets. And what he basically was talking about was the need for exactly what our thesis is, fixed rate borrowing, right? Um, which he, he quoted from a, a paper that uh, Notional wrote. Uh, Teddy's actually coming on the pod as well. In 2018, there was $15.3 trillion of debt outstanding in the US uh, corporate debt market. 80% of that was in fixed rates. He also outlined that the way that you do that is through this market for interest rate swaps, which we talked a lot about in the pilot. But that's basically an interest rate swap is a swap of different cash flows in the future. So you swap, you know, I've got interest rate X, you've got interest rate Y, we agree to swap cash flows. It's a way to hedge, but it's also a way to lock in fixed rate borrowing. So he kind of outlined what the opportunity for that was in DeFi and what some of the different models that people were trying. So he actually got into like in the weeds, right, of how it actually might work. But we also, he also, he's in the process of building out this really interesting thesis about what catalyzes bull markets, right? So he says it's a it's an innovation in token distribution, right? So in 2017 in ICOs, it was, because back then it was all about proof of work type coins. You didn't actually need to go out and, and create all of these different, get all these different people to verify your network. You could sold pre, pre-mined tokens, right? That was a big innovation in terms of, uh, distributing tokens, boom, led to the big uh, boom in ICOs. Then you actually had launch pads. Like in 2019, there was a Binance launch pad when you could just launch directly in a compliant way onto Binance. So you had a bunch of liquidity there that caused a little mini bubble. Then more prominently, your DeFi summer in 2020, which was yield farming. Uh, and then you had NFTs. But basically the idea is all of these things, I think to us, right, they look like some form of equity financing, which are these protocols. They're giving away tokens, which is kind of ownership, right, in the protocol, the right to vote, their governance tokens in general. And that kicks off these these bull markets. But in traditional markets, you know, you and I have talked about actually what what usually ends up kicking things off is a bubble in debt. You know, most recently that was CDOs in in 2008 for the great financial crisis. You can go all the way back, right? I mean, like Michael Milken in the, the late 80s, uh, you know, slinging junk bonds around. He basically created an asset class for that in the United States. So you, so Basically, mapping these two concepts together, the unlock that gets created by fixed rate borrowing and this idea of equity financing, innovation and equity financing kicking off bull markets, you know, we wanted to get his impression of, do you think that there's ever going to be a debt-based bull market, something, you know, a, a debt-based catalyst that kicks off uh, a bull market in crypto? And so that's what we got his opinion on. I added no value to this intro. I think you said. I think no, you did not, my friend. <laughs> I, added, I added arguably negative value to the interview. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, we can we can wrap it there. Let's get into the interview with Tushar. Boom. Let's get into it. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Uh, today we're joined by uh, managing partner at Multicoin, Tushar Jane. Tushar, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. We're really excited about it. Um, we've got two really big topics that we want to cover with you today. They're going to seem different when I outline them here, but we're going to make them connect uh, at the end of the episode. So we're going to talk about DeFi native interest rate markets, which you wrote a great piece on back in October of 2021, the previous year. And this really interesting new thesis that you have on distribution mechanisms uh, around tokens and how that leads to or tends to catalyze uh, different bull markets in crypto. Uh, but I want to start with kind of the high level uh, on the interest rate market side of things. So you wrote this great piece again back in October of 2020, 2021 of this past year, uh, talking about this big opportunity that you saw for a market for interest rate swaps. So can you just give us the overview of like, why did you write this paper? And what do you find interesting about the market for interest rate swaps in crypto? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I like looking for primitives, uh, you mm. know, things that can be composed 
to build bigger products you know, with, with more features and such. And when it comes to DeFi, there is nothing more primitive than an interest rate swap, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, it, so much of modern finance is just about uh, borrowing at fixed rates versus floating rates and the arbitrage between them and you know the fixed income market. And interest rate derivatives are by far the most liquid derivative out there. Uh, interest rate swaps are like, at least as of the time that I wrote this post in October, six and a half trillion dollars, trillion with a T of daily traded volume. And it was over 80% of the world's total derivatives volume. Like these are staggering, staggering numbers. These are the, you know, some of the deepest, most liquid markets out there. And then I looked at DeFi in um, its incarnation right now, and it's almost all variable rate lending. Mm. Um, like I would, say, I would, I would go so far as to say it's like 90, 98, 99 or higher percent, uh, is variable rate. And that introduces risk for borrowers. Now, if I'm a borrower, I may not want to take out a loan that is a floating rate loan, just like, you know, people may not want to take out like floating rate mortgages because then when rates go up, like your debt service payment, your interest payment goes up. And you may not be able to afford it and then you get liquidated. That sounds terrible, um, right? So th I think that there's a lot of people who don't want to borrow at floating rates, especially mm. mainstream users, I think, uh, are more partial to fixed rates if you look at what you know the traditional economy looks like. Um, and so that's where I saw an opportunity. And the, the very nice thing here is that with something like interest rate swaps, you can compose floating rate and fixed rate markets together. Mm. So you can enable efficient arbitrage between those markets and you can have the liquidity of one market help, you know, kickstart the other market uh, because you're able to, to have this very efficient construction. So that's what I found very interesting, very interesting about this market. And uh, that's why I wrote that post. We also made an investment in a protocol called Strips, uh, which we mm. announced in that post that is building interest rate swaps. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to just start for those who might not be familiar with this market, because you're right, it's a huge market. And actually, when I read those statistics in your in your report, I just had to go look it up. It's like, it's really this big of a market? It's And it's an enormous market. So can you just walk us through it like at a high level, what an interest rate swap is and how this super large, super liquid market cr uh, transforms variable interest rates in TradFi into more fixed income rates? Like, what does the actual mechanism look like? So there's a variety of mechanisms um, that can be used. And what we tried to do is understand the design trade-offs of each of the constructions. Um, mm. That's that's usually our like MO when it comes to analyzing a new complex large market. Uh, you know, usually I don't think there are like there, there's a right answer for a, a design of something like this. Uh, there are trade-offs along the Pareto frontier, and uh, it, it is helpful to know, you know, where is that Pareto frontier? So there, there's a few constructions uh, for fixed rate lending or, or interest rate derivative markets. Uh, I think the simplest one is zero coupon bonds. The, 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 this is very intuitive and easy to grasp. I borrow money. I have to pay you back. I borrow X dollars. I have to pay you back Y dollars at you know Z date, uh, and that's it. Um, and that can be a liquid tradable asset for you, like a bond, uh, and you can go and sell it to someone else, and I would have to pay them back. Um, this is an interesting primitive just because it is very simple. Uh, it supports both fixed rate lending and borrowing, uh, so both sides can have fixed rates, which is which is helpful. It's relatively safe because everything is over collateralized. And very interestingly, this allows you to build a yield curve on top of the protocol because you can see the yields at which the various bonds are trading with various maturities. Um, and having a yield curve is like one of the most important kind of analytical tools in financial markets. So um, th that's what's powerful about this construction. The, the downside, though, is that it fragments liquidity across these different expiries. Um, you, you need an oracle for the collateral 
um, or debt ratio. Uh, and, and this introduces some risk. Um, and it's capital inefficient for speculators or market makers. Um, it, it is very simple and efficient for organic market participants who want to be there, like, you know, the lenders and the borrowers. But if you want to increase the liquidity of a market, you have to you know, make it easy and efficient for market makers as well, who are showing up, you know, just to do the, the math and, and collect arbitrage profits. And zero coupon bonds don't do the best job at that. There's a bit more capital inefficiency there. No, I think that that's a that's a helpful. I mean, really, what I what I just wanted to make clear to the audience, right, is that like a, just a swap is just it's a swap of future cash flows, right? So if there's company A and company B, they agree to say at a certain point in the future you can swap uh, different different cash flows, and the way that that works, right, transforming a variable interest rate that like the kind you might get from Ethereum, right? Which there's a there's a variable stake rate there. There are variable rates that get produced on Compound and Aave is you might say, hey, I don't want to take any of that variable risk. So you can basically do something like an option, right? And say, I actually want to sell in a future date the option to collect this amount, basically. Uh, and that's good for whoever sells that, right? They're kind of taking a speculative bet that interest rates aren't going to spike. And then you as a borrower get to lock in a fixed rate. Um, and you kind of mentioned why that there was a preference uh, for borrowers to borrow at a fixed rate. I think Jason and I, as uh, operators of a company, have a pretty good intuitive understanding of what that is. But like, walk us through why you think that the market for fixed rate lending might even be bigger than than variable rate lending, right? Because Compound and Aave have been great, but I think there's some limited upside there because all you get is this variable yield that if you're a company, you can't borrow at 2% knowing that it might spike to 20% the next day, right? So like, walk us through like more concretely, like, how does this expand the market just for lending products in crypto in general? Yeah, I mean, I think we can look at traditional financial markets as a signpost here. I, I generally think mm -hmm. that we in DeFi are speedrunning the lessons of traditional financial markets. You know, basically everything that took traditional financial markets 150 years to evolve, like we're doing it in five, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. which is pretty incredible. And so when you look at traditional financial markets, like, um, in 2018, there was uh, about $15.3 trillion of debt outstanding in U.S. corporate debt and mortgage debt, not counting sovereign, uh, mm. not counting treasuries. And 88% of that debt was in fixed interest rate terms. So, like, the market has spoken very loudly uh, that, you know, the average people, the, the average users and the average uh, borrower dollar really wants uh, to have fixed rates. Uh, I don't see any reason why that would be different in DeFi. If we want DeFi to go mainstream, I think, you know, we have to go meet users where their preferences are, and they have clearly expressed their preferences here in traditional capital markets. How does this, Tushar, how does this work in traditional capital markets, right? It's, it's, I don't think you ever have a borrower who goes into a bank and is like, I want to do a swap. Give me a swap. They go in and they say, oh, I want to do, I, I want to fix on a fixed rate loan, right? So then the bank says, okay, we'll give you that fixed rate loan. They take that and they basically give that to what the interest rate swaps desk and the, and the desk trades, trades the loans out. Like how does, how does this actually, what are the mechanisms of how this works in traditional capital markets right now? Yeah, that, that that's fairly accurate. Um, basically you have the, the banks managing two things here. You have the managing credit risk and rate risk. Right, uh, you don't want to be, you know, a long-term lender at one percent interest rates before the Fed goes and raises interest rates a whole bunch, right? Like that, if you just do the math on how much that bond is worth after uh, rates have been raised, like you as a lender are losing money on a mark-to-market basis. Um, so banks typically very strictly monitor what their interest rate exposure is. Um, to understand what would happen to the mark-to-market value of the loans on their books as interest rates change. Uh, and frequently, uh, you know, they will go to like an interest rate swaps desk, basically a group of traders within the bank that will hedge out some of that risk for the bank by saying like, uh, you know, I have too much floating rate risk. I will sell you the income that I will get from these loans in exchange for a fixed coupon payment that you pay me. Uh, that, that's the, the simplest instantiation of it. Though these contracts frequently get extremely sophisticated and complex, 
uh, with tremendous amounts of leverage in them. Right now, um, you know, to your point, just about fixed income markets or uh, fixed rate markets being much larger than variable in crypto right now, across many of the DeFi protocols, like your makers, your compounds, your Aave, there's about $10 billion worth of outstanding loans. Um, if we use that 80% analog from TradFi, they were saying maybe even, even today, right, if the ability to borrow in a fixed rate existed, you could expect that market to be somewhere on the magnitude of like four times larger. Um, what you what you also need there though, is like you need kind of product market fit for these credit products. And what we haven't really seen actually is like who's gonna step in and like who wants to borrow at the fixed rate. And you actually outlined two different groups, I think, that might provide some of that demand for borrow. So you kind of talked about like neobanks and institutions. And then you actually talked about DAOs, which I thought was extremely interesting as well. Um, I want to start with like maybe the neobank uh, institutional side of things. Like, what does demand look like from that customer segment? How would they like leverage um, the existence of like, you know, fixed rate credit products um, and kind of you know proliferate there? Yeah, I think neobanks are, are more on the supply side of this market. Um, mm. I, I think that fixed rates are interesting because then if you are a neobank, you can offer fixed rates to your depositors. Uh, right. And you're not taking the risk of, you know, offering a fixed rate, but earning a floating rate, you're able to properly hedge it out, um, mm. which I think is uh, really preferable for a lot of these entities, right? They, they, they don't want to take that risk, right? No, no one wants to really take that type of uh, mismatch. Um, I think the, your market size characterization sounds right. Uh, I, I think that there's a very significant um, market that is not being met yet for DeFi lending. Uh, mm. And I have two theories for why that is. One is our conversation that we're having today about fixed rate markets. But the second mm. is the nature of collateral in DeFi lending versus in traditional finance. The fact that all lending in DeFi is over collateralized is hugely restrictive on the market for lending. However, without the ability to have legal recourse to go after a delinquent borrower, it is very scary to lend, you know, an under collateralized DeFi uh, pro protocol. Like that, that, that's just asking for trouble, right? Like you're putting those pennies down in front of a steamroller or you're picking up pennies in front of a steamroller and then you have like a giant three arrows type event and it like, you know, can wipe out all of the earnings that you've had, you know, in the past 10 years or something crazy um, because, you know, they weren't collateralized and you don't have any recourse. Uh, so if that's the case, that's actually pretty bearish for DeFi in, in my mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I, I don't see a plausible path for under collateralized lending on DeFi without legal recourse scaling to, you know, the billions of dollars of scale without tremendous, tremendous risk. Yeah. I, I think under collateralized lending is like the big, that's one of the big white whales that has it. Cause to, again, I, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but the amount of lending that's collateralized in TradFi, right. is much, much smaller, right? Like an order of magnitude smaller than under collateralized lending, which also just makes sense. Usually people go uh, to get a loan because they need capital, not because usually if you basically over collateralized le uh, lending is like you're trying to leverage your existing capital. Um, so it's just a very different, very different thing. Yes. Um, I, I, I wanted right, to, uh, to talk about DAOs here for, for a second. Uh, yeah. Yeah, please. I think that that is maybe the one place where under collateralized lending and DeFi can work because you're lending to a smart contract. You're not lending to a person mm. or an entity. You're lending to a contract, and that contract is the shelling point for the community. It's not easy to change it, right? If you have a very large DAO, um, you know, let's say with 10 million contributors in it, uh, and then you go take out a loan for, you know, let's say $100 million um, on the future cash flows of that DAO, whatever the DAO does, uh, it is hard for you to then say, get all 10 million people to switch to a new contract and avoid having to pay your debt. Uh, of course, the borrower could still default, like if the DAO, you know, stops earning cash flow or something for whatever reason, mm. like that is possible, but you can't easily willingly default. You can't like game the system. 
And so that's why mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, protocol to DAO lending is probably the, the most interesting spot for growth in DeFi credit markets. I, I tend to agree with you. And I would actually plus one that with, um, like, what do you think about this idea? Like if uh, a lot of the way that these DAOs have grown, right, they've, they've done things like yield farming, which is basically bootstrapping, right, through something that looks like related to equity financing, right? Given equity-like instruments in the form of tokens out to their community, pull growth forward from the future. Um, that's great. That's really worked super well. But I think what people are kind of starting to realize in this bear market is that you bring on a lot of mercenary type liquidity. It's a very expensive way of acquiring new customers um, and because it's equity financing, right? So eventually it makes sense to me that DAOs will pursue some form of debt financing, right? They'll start to add debt to their financing mix as opposed to just 100% equity. And even if you think about something like Aave, Aave will have been around, you know, maybe by the time the next bull cycle kicks off for like five to seven years, like depending on when that is. Like that's typically around the time where companies are mature enough, have steady enough cash flows to pursue some form of debt financing in there. So there's also just the sense of like, eventually people will come in, they'll start managing treasuries in a much more traditional way and they'll start pursuing finance in a much more traditional way. I think it makes a lot more sense for DAOs to go through like a DeFi native credit product than like going to a big bank or lender. I don't know your thoughts are there. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think if you have a protocol that is earning cash flows, uh, that, that can be quite attractive. Uh, lending marketplace is a little bit weird here. That's kind of like a bank going to the lending markets, uh, which is a very complex subset of the credit markets. Um, mm. that that's less about, uh, yeah, that, that's more about like capital markets than, 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 um, other like credit type things. Uh, so I, I'm really excited to look at DAOs that are providing some good or service outside of borrow lend that earn cash flows, you know, like, let's say, um, sushi swap would be an interesting example because like they earn five bits of all trading volume. So if they wanted to borrow money, cause like, I, I think that that would be interesting. Uh, right. Uniswap doesn't really earn anything. So I, I, I don't think that, that, that works. So it's actually quite limited. Um, right. There's only very few protocols out there that earn real cash flows that are not borrow land marketplaces. Tushar, we're all, I mean, we're all kind of nodding our head here saying, agree, like we need fixed, in, uh, fixed interest rate loans in DeFi, this whole, you know, DAOs will start borrowing uh, debt instead of just capitalizing their businesses with equity. Why hasn't this happened yet though? What's, what's been the missing link so far in DeFi? Uh, that's a good question. I think there's a number of things that, are, that have made this hard. One is uh, honestly, liquidity mining distorted the market very significantly over the past two years. Uh, in, in some cases, people were getting paid to borrow, right? They, they would earn more on their liquidity mining rewards from being a borrower than they were paying in interest. Uh, and that, that's just massively, massively distortive. It, it makes the data like far less useful. It changes people's incentives. Um, and now luckily, thankfully we are seeing poorly defined liquidity mining protocols like on their way out. And DeFi teams are much more sophisticated about how they're thinking about rewarding uh, market activity. I, I think that is a fundamentally important thing that we need. You know, we need more rational incentives in the market. And I think that that will help drive people to express their true preferences. Whereas right now, um, it's mostly like there's a lot of hot money that is just there to like earn the liquidity mining rewards. Um, I also think DAOs as a real business entity concept is like a brand new thing. Uh, it's, it's only like a year old. I, I honestly can't name that many that like earn actual cash flows. So like that, that just hasn't happened yet. I expect that it will happen. I'm quite bullish on the future of, of this, but you know, it's early and it's hard for lenders to underwrite, you know, the cash flows of like HiveMapper as a DAO or helium as a DAO or something, you know, in this very early stage, like it's just, you know, th those cash flows are either quite small or non-existent just cause like these things have been around for a year, maybe two, 
uh, they're just not that old. Yeah. If this starts happening, this actually starts ramping up like debt inside of uh, DeFi, uh, like DAO to DAO debts. Will, if you look at capital, if you look at TradFi right now, you have these bonding curves, right? So like governments and companies raise funds by issuing bonds at these like fixed interest rates for set periods. Let's call it like a two year or five year or 10 year bond. Longer lockup equals higher interest rates and vice versa forms the curve. That doesn't, there are no fixed maturities in DeFi. So if this starts happening, do we, are we going to start seeing these yield curves in DeFi? Um, like where you can get a set rate for locking up ETH for, for five years, let's call it. Yes, I think so. And you have an approximation of this with DeFi derivatives protocols with dated futures. Mm. Uh, you can imply an interest rate with dated futures. Uh, you can also do this on centralized exchanges like FTX as well. Right. And you can construct the, the curve there. Uh, I think what we will see is composability will lead to those curves, uh, you know, uh, coming together from uh, like arbitragers will arbitrage those two, uh, in order to capture that relatively risk-free or, or very low risk profit. Um, so we already kind of have yield curves. I think they could be much, much better and the markets could be much larger. But when you think about it, like right now, the demand for borrowing in DeFi is all about speculation, really. It's about, oh, I own a bunch of ETH and I don't want to sell it and I need dollars to pay for, you know, my house or whatever. Um, or, oh, I own a bunch of soul. I don't want to sell it. Let me borrow some dollars and actually I want to go levered long, um, right? that maps very, very well to derivatives, uh, right? And, and actually one theory that I have is that it's possible that borrow lend has not gotten bigger in DeFi because, or in crypto broadly, because derivatives are such a big component of this market. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's also why I think options may not have taken off as, as much as they have in traditional finance. Like, you know, talk to so many options teams trying to build DeFi options on, on CeFi, all you have is like Deribit really at, at, a, at any sort of uh, very meaningful scale. And, you know, people keep looking for it to take off. And, you know, my thought is if you're comparing to US equity markets, I think options volumes are really high because that is the best way for retail to get leverage. Like they can't, there's no perps. There's no, if you're retail, like try trading on the CME and trading futures, like you're, you're not gonna be allowed. Uh, right, they, they they don't let you trade that stuff. Um, so it's possible that the, that perps are the construction that eats all of this market share for speculative borrowing. Um, and so that 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 might be something that's very different about crypto capital markets from traditional capital markets. How, how does that impact the creation of these interest rate swap markets? Right, because my understanding, like if you go back to Jason's TradFi example, right, like let's say you go to get a thirty-year fixed mortgage, you go to your bank, they say, okay, that's totally fine, and then they, basically they've got like a whole back-end network of people that will take what is essentially a levered bet on interest rates to be the up, to lock in the fixed portion of your yield. Um, I feel like. Do we still need that kind of thing for crypto? And if so, like, is the perp involved in that? If the perp is what's keeping us from having like deep, uh, like liquid options kind of native markets, you see what I mean? Like, how does the the impact of the perp, uh, the perpetual contract, like, impact the creation of the interest rate swap markets? Uh, th that's an interesting question. If you think about it from first principles, actually, like, a perp is kind of like borrowing at a floating rate because the funding rate changes every hour. Right. And then dated futures are like borrowing at a fixed rate because you know the price you paid at time T, uh, you know, you paid price Y for the future, spot is worth X, so you can calculate the rate. And that's not going to change because it, you, you entered it at that point and you, you're not paying funding. Uh, so we have this already with derivatives. Uh, I think hmm. having that for over collateralized loans, like they're, they're fundamentally very, very similar things, right? Like if I'm putting my ETH into Aave to borrow USDC to buy more ETH versus I'm putting my ETH into FTX or Perpetual Protocol or Mango and going lever long, like those are kind of the same thing. Um, so I, I generally am, am pretty bullish on derivatives markets for this, for this stuff. 
I think that there is going to be a market for interest rate derivatives that will likely trade on the derivatives markets, whether that's Mango or Perp or whatever, right? Like, I, I think that they will have interest rates markets as like one of their markets. So you can go and speculate on interest rates if you want. I think that that will make the markets more liquid and more efficient because right now it's, it's just hard to go short rates, right? Like if I see that interest rates are really high, right? Like it, it's hard to go short. How, how do I say, how do I express a view that, uh, you know, I think uh, rates for lenders are going to go down over the next six months in DeFi. Like it, you can't really do that today. Um, so I think that DeFi derivatives will, will probably be the way that this is traded. I want to return to a point that we were making kind of about, you made this point about yield farm or yield farming distorting markets and signals that people were able to take from markets. Um, this is going to seem, this is kind of, I want to move on to like the second part of what we wanted to chat about, which was this, uh, you made this really interesting point that whenever we see a new innovation in terms of how tokens are distributed, that tends to catalyze a bull run. And that has a lot to do with um, the cycles that we see in crypto. And you've got a lot of great historical examples in there. Uh, so can you, can you kind of just walk us through that theory of yours? Like, when, what, what do you mean uh, when you say like innovations and how tokens are distributed? And what have they kind of looked like in the past? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to walk through it. I want to caveat up front, though. Uh, this is possibly a correlation, not causation thing. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I can't say for certain that this is causal, but the correlation is very, very strong. Uh, if you look at the historical bull markets in crypto, 2013 bull market kicked off by the proliferation of proof of work uh, mining coins. You, you know, people, Bitcoin at that time was like, you know, four years old. It, people were like, oh, yeah, this, this actually works. This like makes sense. And so they started making more coins and th that got everyone really excited, drew a bunch of attention and, and kicked off a bull market. Then 2017 was ICOs. People were like, oh, we don't need to just do proof of work coins. Like, that's pretty environmentally wasteful and like we, we, we don't need this uh, component. Like what if we just pre-mined the tokens and sold them? And Ethereum really kicked this off uh, at, at scale with their very large uh, pre-mine and, and sale, which was a new capital formation method for crypto at the time uh, and extraordinarily successful. Um, kicked off 2017 bull market. Um, then I think, you know, in 2020, we saw, well, before 2020, 2019, we saw the emergence of IEOs, uh, which, which kicked off like a mini bull market, not, not that different from ICOs, uh, other than you know, regulatory compliance, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily different enough or new enough to like really kick off a bull market. It was kind of a muted bull market. If you, if you recall, you know, Bitcoin going from like 3K to 12 and then uh, drawing back down. Um, it did not take out its past all-time highs. Uh, neither did ETH or, or any of the other assets. And then in 2020, we saw the advent of liquidity mining, first with, uh, I think, Compound uh, announced their liquidity mining program in June of 2020, if I recall correctly. Uh, and that was a new token distribution mechanism, new method of capital formation that got a lot of people really excited. Everyone started doing it, drove the 2020 bull market. And then I think 2021 was really driven by NFTs. Um, I think, you know, like the second half of 2021, that was uh, driven by consumers actually showing up and saying, oh, I want to buy this digital item. Um, and that was a new token distribution mechanism because it was different people getting to distribute the tokens. Now it was creators and influencers and artists distributing these tokens, not just like, you know, finance nerds like me or, uh, you know, uh, like uh, a, a bunch of crypto nerds like 2017 ICOs, um, and, and that was a new method. Uh, but it is not clear that this is entirely causal. It's possible that like there is related causality here in that these new mechanisms attract attention and the attention is actually what kicks off the bull market because, uh, you know, I, I think we live in an attention economy like that. That is a scarce resource of our time. Um, so I, I want to be mindful of that. Tujar, I can't help but think, I like the theory, but I can't help but think that um, these token distribution mechanisms are really just uh, evolutions that are trying to stay ahead of like user's game theory, right? And then like once the prominent game theory anticipates the 
the distribution mechanism, the signal that you're trying to create and isolate actually becomes noise, right? So if you think about um, who did airdrops first, like Uniswap, I think did, did uh, or like retro, like if you use retroactive airdrops as an example, at one point in time, they, uh, they, they worked really well. But now that users know that they're coming, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult to isolate who's like the loyal Uniswap user or the, the, the loyal protocol user. And then who's just aping in from like a hundred different addresses who are just trying to collect a bag. So I feel like, uh, uh, it's, it's just interesting to see that the, none of these things last very long. They all there's, I feel, I, I agree with you that all these token distribution mechanisms kick off these bull markets. I like that theory, but it's interesting to note that they all only last for like, let's call it six to 12 months. Yeah, there's a half-life on this yeah. stuff. It's it's almost like, you know, you have the meta of the game and then the, the meta has to change once yeah. everyone knows yeah. the meta. Uh, if everyone knows the meta, then like, it's not gonna work anymore. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I agree with you. This stuff has a short half-life. Yeah. I think it's a good, uh, I mean, what I would also say, maybe just to like slightly tweak Jason, what you said is like, or maybe put a more positive spin. It's just like the, it's, it's, it's the mechanism gets refined, right? It gets refined and then retried in a way that hopefully creates more value, right? Like maybe uh, like yield farming in its current iteration is a pretty expensive, pretty blunt tool that, but it still worked for some protocols, right? Like it cr clearly created a lot of hype. I think Compound, right, was the first one that really kicked this off. And look, there's still a blue chip project in the space, right? So maybe the next iteration of this is like, instead of just, hey, here's some uh, basically free tokens just for showing up and dumping your liquidity, we want you to do more specific tasks, right? And then those will start to look more like KPIs at a company instead of just like, hey, do work, get equity type thing. Um, not that some of these things are equity, but I think it's just refining basically over a period of time. Well, and it's just when more and more, when it, when it works really well for one company, more companies go do it, space gets competitive and, and then people have to move on. No, no different than D to C companies advertising on Instagram, working super well, everyone goes and goes to do it. Rates for ads on Instagram go up. You have to go find a new thing. So. Yeah. yeah. And I know Tushar, you've got a theory about what the next mechanism is going to be. Uh, this is a great, again, a great post that you wrote on uh, proof of physical work. So can you just talk to us a little bit about what is proof of physical work? And I know you funded uh, like Helium, which you think is an example of this. So just kind of walk us through what that, what that is and what that might look like in the future. Yeah, absolutely. The, the theory here is actually very simple. Um, the the mm. theory is you can pay people in tokens to do stuff and that stuff could be useful, right? Mm. We've been paying a lot of people with tokens to do useless stuff, right? That, that doesn't create any value. Like me battling my axes, like doesn't really create any value for anyone. Um, but we could pay people with tokens to do useful stuff, like build a telecom network, put a bunch of, you know, hotspots all around the world to provide very inexpensive connectivity. Uh, you can do things like reward people with tokens to build a global mapping network. Uh, you can do things like reward people with tokens to build a distributed energy grid, right? Like uh, se several of these ideas are, are quite compelling. And what they have in common is that they create this capital asset that is created by the sum of those individual actions. Me signing up for some distributed energy thing or putting a hotspot up in my window or putting a, dash, a hive map or dash cam in my car doesn't really accomplish much. I'm just a person, right? But if we can get like 100,000 people to do it or a million people to do it, that whole is worth more than the sum of its parts. Uh, and that is really the, the, the core of what I find interesting about proof of physical work is it's, it, it's basically like proof of useful work um, and mm. people doing something useful that creates a capital asset. And it's a new form of capital formation, which I think is extraordinarily compelling. It's just, it's funny. I mean, that sounds so... Um similar to me almost and just in terms of how again equity is used at companies like equity is kind of the great incentive aligner within an organization it's like you've got your kpis and your kpis and your kpis but really what we want to do is create equity value here so the thing that we own goes up together so it's just it's funny to hear you describe like useful work and then you get this thing uh, and that's like the the big incentive aligner but i kind of feel like that's just what it is on a global scale right yeah, exactly. It, it, it is similar to, to traditional business formation, but the difference here is there are different trust properties which allow the system to scale much, much, much larger. Uh, you know, if you think about it, there's 
there's only like three entities in the US that employ more than a million people, right? I think it's like the post office, the military and Walmart or something like that, right? Like that, there's a limit to how big these corporations can get in terms of coordinating people, but there's a million hotspots on Helium already, you know, like they, mm. they, there can be 10 million very easily because there's a structured coordination with some trust minimized properties to it. So I think this is like the next generation evolution of this type of capital formation because it reduces friction. It is global from day one. Uh, it, it has some of these very nice trust minimized properties. And I think that it just is much more inclusive and gives more people access to participate uh, than traditional rails. So you think then the next, I just want to make sure yeah. I understand. Do you think the next bull market will get either, either get kicked off with this or, or will be a big theme in the next bull market, this like infrastructure networks that are driven by thousands, then hundreds of thousands, then eventually millions of people doing some sort of physical work, like with HiveMapper taking videos or with Helium setting up their hotspots, um, or with Filecoin, you know, sharing, sharing, or are we sharing, sharing, uh, file storage? That's what you think. That's the, that's the big, one of the big themes and narratives of the next, uh, or use cases of the next bull market. I think so. I, I, I would expand that slightly to also include useful digital mm -hmm. work. Uh, right. The, the, the work doesn't need to be entirely physical. Um, uh, you can have useful digital work. Like for example, we invested in a company called Delphia, which is a data DAO. The idea is basically a user can go sign up and connect their Amazon account for their Amazon data, their JP Morgan account for, you know, their financial data, their Google account for their search data, uh, and so on and so forth. And Delphia collects all that information, joins the tables together, and then uses that to, uh, train machine learning models that can predict asset prices. Cause they can do something like say like, oh, Jason, you're such an influencer. Every time you talk about a product, like turns out all your friends buy it. Right. And then that company goes and beats earnings. And that's me. And like, this is some useful work yeah. as well. Right. Yeah. Because like the useful work here, like the capital asset that you are creating is this large database of data sets that could not have been created yeah. otherwise, right? Like you can buy some alternative data, but you can't join the tables together easily, uh, right? You're buying an anonymized. If you could join them together, mm -hmm. that'd be, that'd be quite a failure of anonymization. Um, right. And some of this data is just not even available for sale. Like, you know, LinkedIn doesn't sell yeah. some of this data, but knowing who is moving from what company to another company could be extraordinarily predictive, but you just can't mm -hmm. get this data right now. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's more like proof of useful work than just physical work. I've actually been pretty skeptical about the Solana phone. I will admit to Char. Um, I know you guys are big, uh, big backers of Solana, but I just, something just clicked, which is you take a, a lot of this is verifying physical work. And if you take a phone, a crypto native phone that where, I mean, your phone has more data on you than, than anything out there right now. And, uh, a lot of that data can be going back into verifying these these uh these proof of physical work networks i just i don't know if i'm sure you guys are light years ahead of me on that but it that just clicked for me <laughs> yeah absolutely that, that that's entirely right i, I do want to comment on the solana phone uh briefly yeah. um when when they told me first about the idea i was like you're crazy like what you're gonna go compete against <laughs> apple and google <laughs> and, and build a phone like like guys like let's pull over the bus here and have a conversation right yeah. But then I, I started talking to them and, and just like thinking from first principles, like what were they trying to accomplish? And I think the core of what they're trying to do is say key management should not be an application level thing. It should be at the operating system level. The fact that I have a Chrome extension that, you know, you, that I use to sign transactions is just like it inherently unsafe because the key is being stored in a user accessible part of the computer, um, that the same thing is true on mobile, right? Like if you've used MetaMask on mobile, like it's, it's a pretty atrocious experience and intrinsically insecure because the key is being stored somewhere that the user or, you know, the file system can access it. And so like the, the really key innovation in my mind about Saga and Solana mobile stack is creating the norm that an application throws a, an unsigned message to the operating system 
And it's the operating system's job to figure out how to sign it. Now, specifically with the Solana mm -hmm. system, like they're going to have a secure enclave. So the private key will live in that secure enclave. The private key is never exposed to the outside world. You're able to pass a message in, sign that message, and then pass a message out and then broadcast it, uh, which is basically the same security that you have with a ledger wallet or a Trezor wallet you know, like a, or, or any other hardware wallet, which is the gold standard. And I think we need to solve key management before we can get mainstream users on, right? Like my mom's never gonna write down 12 words. It's just not, not gonna happen. Or if she does, she's gonna write them on a, on a plain piece of paper and like, you know, leave it on the dresser or something, right? Like people, people uh, mainstream users are not gonna do this easily, right? So I think um, building that into the operating system that everyone already uses is extremely compelling. Uh, I, I would consider the Solana mobile phone successful if it influences the current mobile phone manufacturers to do this. It doesn't need to sell a ton of units oh, or like take over or like yeah, dethrone Apple point. or anything. It just needs to get yeah. them to like make signing crypto transactions a first class hmm. citizen. I, I completely, I was going to say actually the reason why what you were describing before at proof of physical work sounded cool to me. I find it very cool when like crypto actually translates and starts influencing things in the real world, similar to what the internet did, right? Like a really small example of that on the internet is when uh, menus at restaurants, they started printing in a way, or like when, you know, a restaurant would create something that was like really Instagrammable, you know? So you had, uh, so you had like in the internet world influencing the real world. And that like maybe started to happen in crypto a little bit with just ASICs and miners in general, but like this would be kind of the whole next evolution of that, honestly, with the phone. So I'm rooting for it as well. Um, but I want to, I know we're drawing low on time here and I want to try to connect these like two distinct conversations that we're having and get your opinion on kind of on, on our thesis here, which is if you look at a lot of these innovations in distribution that you're talking about, these are really about getting tokens in the hand of people. And that looks something like to me, similar to some form of equity financing, right? You are, especially like with ICOs, what they were doing is they were bootstrapping growth by selling, you know, future wasn't really that clear, but something like ownership in the network, right? So that looks to me like kind of a form of equity financing. So there are examples in TradFi of these like equity financing bubbles that happened, right? All the way from the dot-com bubble, right? That was an equity financing driven bubble to like the South Sea bubble, like all the way back, uh, all the way back when. But also what happens in TradFi is debt driven bubbles. That's a big thing too, right? And you had recent examples again in like 2008 CDOs that kind of caused this huge like uh, glut for debt around the housing market and that resulted in this big boom and then bust. Uh, but again, back in the 80s too with Mike Milken, the creation of like a whole new asset class around junk bonds. So debt also drives these bubbles as well. So I guess, you know, my question to you and maybe knitting together these two themes is, do you ever see like debt being a big part in the, in the um, catalyzation of a new bull market? Um, and if so, do you think that the ability to borrow at a fixed rate will unlock or create um, kind of that rush? That is a very interesting question. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a, yeah, that's, that's a fascinating thought process to, to combine those two things. Uh, I would say it's possible that we have had a debt fueled uh, bubble in crypto already. Uh, I don't think it was in DeFi. I think it was in CeFi. It was things like Celsius and Genesis and Babel, uh, you know, lending under collateralized to groups like Three Arrows. Uh, and really like th these things all share something in common, which is someone borrows money or raises money, prices go up. They use that money to like, you know, buy assets. And then that encourages more people to lend money or to you know invest in the equity-like layer, and that runs you know like a reflexive cycle. Um, so yes, I, I, I do think that there is a real chance that fixed-rate lending or Dow-to-Dow uh, -to -Dow lending is the next big new capital source. Uh, especially within DeFi, and it could trigger a bull market. I, I, I think that, that that's a valid thesis. Awesome. All right. Tushar, you've been super generous with your time. I guess any closing questions, Jason or Tushar, anything else that you wanted to... Uh, you guys, right, by the way, the blog, uh, I'll, I'll give you guys a plug here. The blog on Multicoin site is like a goldmine of great information. So like, I want to plug uh, some of the work that you produce. But any just closing thoughts, I guess, on anything that we've talked about or might want to still talk about? Uh, 
Yeah, I would just say, you know, we like sharing our thoughts, podcasts, blog posts, Twitter, et cetera. Uh, one of the main reasons why we like sharing our thoughts is we learn from the audience. Often they come back mm. and they tell us what we're wrong about um, or, you know, what we missed. Uh, so I want to encourage the audience, you know, if you think I'm wrong about something, like I would love to hear that. I, I do not mind being wrong in public at all. That's actually my favorite way to learn. Tushar, I have something that we haven't talked about yet. I want to wrap this up. Sorry, Mike, I know you wanted to wrap this, but uh, stable coins, just all these protocols, Curve, Aave, they're launching their own stables right now. Yeah. Just, I know it's yeah. not really about the two top, related to the two topics Mike wanted to talk about, but I got to get your take on that. Oh yeah, I, I, I have a, an interesting take on that, I think, or hopefully it's differentiated. I think that these things are directly competitive and they're going to converge. Aave and Maker are the same protocol, actually. Uh, they're, they're doing the same thing. Uh, so is Curve, actually. Aave, Maker, Curve all do the same thing, which is if you think about it from the jobs to be done perspective, right? The jobs to be done here are, I have some assets and I want to earn yield on it, or I want to borrow. Yeah. Those are it. Like those are the two jobs. Yeah. Right. Maker is I want to borrow. Ave is I want to earn yield or I want to borrow. Curve is I want to get some yield. Right. And so I think you can have economies of scale by combining them all. That's why I think uh, Ave launching their own stablecoin is fantastic. I think you know th th this is a really interesting move, and I would not be surprised in the future to see Ave launch a stable swap protocol as well, where the assets that you have deposited into the Aave borrow lend protocol could also be used for stable swap for some incremental yield for you. And by having those assets available for both, like you will earn more yield. There's economies of scale to combining this stuff together. So my expectation is over the long run, like we will see stable swap, borrow land and uh, stable coins kind of converge into one protocol. Yeah, it feels like in C5, we saw all of these, you had like lend and borrow platforms, then you had like the wallets and then you had the exchanges. And then over a couple of years, they all kind of converged into these like crypto native banks. DeFi, you're seeing everything converge into whether you start as like a lender or like an AMM or a stable coin, everyone eventually builds an AMM, a lend and borrow platform and a stable coin. And I've heard Sam from Frax call that the, the, tr the holy trinity of DeFi, which uh, is obviously a nice, sexy name on it. But, um, it. but it does feel like that's starting to play out now. So yeah, we'll see. Absolutely. All right, guys. Uh, Tushar, I actually, I love what you said about liking to be wrong in public. That is the entire theme of this show as well. Jason and I are confined to the middle of the bell curve. <laughs> Tell us why we're wrong, why you agree or don't agree with this thesis. Um, so I thought that was just really well said. Uh, Tushar, honestly, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Awesome. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun, man, Tushar. Um, well, first of all, he just schooled us. Uh, we are so proud of this this creation with the bell curve, and he completely schooled <laughs> us on, on, on the actual bell curve meme. Tushar, right after we finished recording, he was like, I love that meme. Whenever I find myself in the middle of the bell curve, I always go to the left. It's easier than always go to the, the left, right. baby. Like, <laughs> yeah, never go to the right the of the bell curve. Never go to the right of the bell curve. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, if, if Tushar is saying you go to the left, I feel better about myself. This I is gotta a win go of a day. Than left. What's left of the left? <laughs> what left yeah. of the left? Yeah. <laughs> it's I think a full circle. I'll end up on yeah, the right. Just take your. Just don't. Basically, don't allocate to crypto. It's left of the left. Yeah, you're, you're, you're yeah, done. Seriously, yeah, just hang up the I cleats. Agree. So, what you, do you think of the episode? I thought it was really good. I mean, I thought it was really good. It was kind of an ambitious episode because we went in and tried to unite these two very different thoughts. I'm not gonna lie, I was a little worried he was gonna be like that. Is really stupid, but <laughs> I'm glad we ended uh, <laughs> on, a, on a high note. Uh, he had a lot of. I had a lot of takeaways um, from what he was saying. Uh, first of all, I didn't understand the importance of uh, the perpetual contract and how, I mean, I, I know that that's widely used in crypto in general, but I hadn't actually thought uh, about that as its own kind of variable funding rate mechanism um, and how that might actually impact the development of decentralized options. So I thought yeah. that was... I thought that was a pretty big takeaway uh, for me, honestly. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, perps, what the funding rate is reset every, I think it's every hour. So um, yeah, that was a good point. I mean, he seems to agree with the fact that Dow, uh, Dow to Dow credit growth will drive, will be just a massive driver in uh, of capital in the next bull market, which, which you and me have talked a lot about. That's, I mean, we've got a full episode dedicated to that later in the season. I thought that was, yeah. I also thought that was a big surprise because I didn't think, I didn't think that he would come right out and say, or be as bullish 
on that um, as you and I were on that topic. I always viewed within this thesis kind of like that was one of the, because the big question is like, where's the borrow going to come from, right? Who wants to issue the debt in the first place um, in a DeFi native way? So DAOs are like one answer to that. But he was really bullish on that as a use case, uh, which I thought was super cool. I, I, I mean, I think he literally said Dow credit growth is the most interesting thing in DeFi right now. So yeah. there, there was something that he said that I didn't understand at the beginning about neobanks being the supply side of, yeah. of, of this debt demand. Banks are basically like distribution, right? So like someone else creates right. the product products, uh, like a financial product like that. Like let's say it's a 30-year fixed mortgage. And then banks and the brokerages that are a part of the banks are the, the distribution mechanism for those things. So actually Matt Levine was the one who first made me understand this like a while ago. But if you think about uh, brokerages as like an investment store and you, the investor, you're like, I want to earn money. And the brokerage is like, here, here are all these different financial products for you to either earn money or buy a house or do whatever it is. So that's why a neobank would be, they'd be like the distributor uh, in a sense. They'd be distribution mechanism for the financial product, which is fixed borrow lend. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I actually, in, in, he mentioned SushiSwap. Um, so I actually want to quote from this, from the blog post that Tushar wrote, because I thought it was really good. Um, this is what he actually said, and a specific example. We predict that many DAOs, such as DAOs that manage risk in large DeFi protocols and NFT platforms, will pursue debt financing. Imagine a world in which the SushiSwap DAO can borrow funds from a variable rate lending protocol and encode logic that says, we will redirect 10% of our revenues from our staked ex-sushi to repay the loan. This would expose the sushi swap DAO to interest rate risk from the variable rate protocol, and they could use IR swaps to hedge it. I think the cool thing in there, and this is something that you couldn't necessarily do, like it's very common, right, in TradFi to do borrowing against future cash flows, but what you can't do, right, it's kind of a promise of, hey, if you have those cash flows, the hope is that that will go to pay the debt, right? But what you can actually do with something like sushi where there's, uh, you know, it's written in the, the code, what their, their take rate, basically, you can direct funds that comes from their take rate into repaying this loan. So actually, it removes a whole layer of risk when you're underwriting a loan, right. which should allow you to offer lower interest rates. And then that's more capital efficient at the end of the day, which is pretty cool. It is cool. It is cool. Yeah. Could Yeah. Yeah, it is cool. It's very you know cool. I mean, I, mean uh, I do. I do know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, it lower rates will be what propels i think defi lend and borrow in, in into the into the mainstream i think yeah. um if there's like if there's no overhead and the maker the maker team obviously talks about this all the time same with ave and compound if there's just much less overhead um to offer these rates they can, can they can continually offer lower and lower rates uh than what traditional capital markets and and tradfi offers yeah so, yeah but i, agree. I think that sushi thing's really interesting yeah Here's the other thing mm. that I loved his conclusion at the end where he's like, I think we've already seen the debt bubble, but I actually, it's funny. I didn't even think of this when we were coming up with the thesis, but yeah, yeah basically yeah. what has driven, you know, a lot of this, this last cycle was all this uncollateralized borrowing that was going on, like largely in the form of 3AC, right? But uh, yeah, I guess like that actually was an enormous amount of the demand that all of we, these- uh, I hadn't thought about that either. We, we've been yeah. in a debt bubble. This was the debt bubble. <laughs> it's already happening. Yeah. yeah um, so shit, the, yeah. the season's over. Season's over, baby. Yeah. yeah. But season's I thought over. That was, a, that was a really interesting point that he had as well. Um, I don't know. I, I liked his, I, and I liked his whole thesis about, um, about uh, you know, new distribution mechanisms kicking off bull markets. I thought it was a good, I haven't heard him give that caveat before, you know, like, oh, there, this could be correlation instead of causation. And I totally agree. But I also think, I don't know, it seems pretty compelling to me. I'd be, I'd be pretty interesting as if, if, if his proof of physical work uh, use case ended up playing out because Helium's great. It's a great company. So yeah. And Hive Mapper. Yeah. So Anything else from the app? No. I think uh, just for, for folks who are going to be tuning in, so next week's episode, we're going to be getting uh, even more into the weeds on fixed rate protocols because we kind of talked a little bit with Tushar at a high level of what fixed rate lending unlocks. But next, we're going to be getting really into the weeds with it um, and talking about what some of the mechanisms are that works and then some of the additional structured products that gets laddered on to fixed rate lending, right? So just to give everyone like a super concrete understanding of like how well, like why the increase, uh, like uh, fixed rate expands the market compared to variable. Like you can think of a 30 year fixed mortgage as like the golden child example of how markets can be grown from variable to fixed. Cause like how many people would borrow 
to uh, you know fund their house basically if your interest rate was super variable. And actually, we can see what happens when people get in trouble with that, right? Uh, that's yeah. what basically caused the mortgage crisis. Um, but uh, uh, the ability to take out a mortgage to a fixed rate is a huge, huge unlock. And that's actually a consumer product, not just like a. So I think. Um, what we're going to talk next week about is like what some of those additional structured products that might be that leverage the ability to borrow at a fixed rate. Like what are some yeah. of those specific unlocks? I think which is going to be cool. One thing I want to learn, uh, one thing I want to get out of the next episode is just talking about LIBOR. Like a lot of interest rates in traditional markets are set around LIBOR. Um, what is like what is the LIBOR equivalent in DeFi? Unless yeah. you already have an answer for that. I don't. Yeah, I mean, you talk, I just think we need a we need some contract of, or some concept of the risk free rate. Right, you were talking about that bonding right. curve, which I thought was a really good explanation. But we need, like, all valuation happens relative to something else. That's why we have our risk-free rate, which is basically the 10-year treasury in the world. And, like, everything else goes off of the yield curve or the risk curve, as opposed to the rate that you can earn on a 10-year. So we just don't really have that in crypto. There's a theory of what that might be. Uh, but that's, I agree, that's what we need to find out. Um, Oh, and then the last thing, which is just the one thing I would flag to people following along for why this thesis might be wrong. I actually have, and nothing has really disconfirmed it at this point, that I think this, there's a good chance that this is right. I think the biggest thing that you and I need to be teasing out around is timing. Because like mm. this fixed rate lending is definitely going to happen in DeFi. It's definitely going to be a big unlock. But I think the thing that I'm the least sure about at, at the current moment is when this is going to happen is, is it going to be this bull cycle the next bull cycle after that so we should you know give some thought into these next couple interviews about trying to parse out how far along fixed rate lending really is and is it likely to be like a this cycle thing or next cycle hmm. yeah good good flag good yeah. flag yeah. all right partner it's been fun shall we cheers 